Good morning, New Life Church. I'm so glad you're here this morning. And uh, even though it's a little uh, cool outside there as winter approaches, it's just felt my heart warmed by worshiping our, our awesome God together with you this morning. So, so glad you made it. Some will be watching this at home, and we're so glad that those of you who are at home watching this uh, are able to join us in that way. And in fact, well, I should maybe just translate. You heard uh, Daniel, Pastor Daniel there, uh, who, who's a young guy who uses words that young people use. Um, so if, 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 if you want to know what it means that our service is being streamed for a certain generation, that means that you can fi- watch it live online. That's what that means. And so uh, after our, uh, our first service, between these two services this morning, uh, I, I just was curious. I went online, and it was so cool to see all these comments for online service from, from our, our church people, you know, like Edna Blunt and Lynn Sutton and... And just a list of all these people that are connecting in that way and leaving comments and feeling like a part of what's happening here. And so it's so great that, that we can be here still in person, but it's also great that for those that can't be here for one reason or another, any given Sunday, have that opportunity to really feel like a part and connect in that way. So that's, that's a new thing, and we're just really excited about using that to keep, uh, keep connected during this crazy time. Uh, so something really exciting happened to me this week. I went to the mail on Friday, and I had a letter. (laughs) And I can't remember the last time I got a letter, like a real letter, like like on on a lined piece of paper that was handwritten. And it didn't begin with, uh, to whom it may concern, it didn't begin with dear supporter, like dear Rusty, a personal letter written in somebody's hand. Well, it wasn't somebody, it was Monica Dieleman. Monica sent me a letter. And uh, many of you will know Monica. She gets to sit in that comfy chair. And, you, and maybe some of you are wondering, if you're new to the church, why do some people get comfy chairs? Well, you have to have extremely bad back pain in our church to get a comfy chair. That's why there's a few comfy chairs there. But she's not here this morning because she has surgery tomorrow morning. Waiting a long time. She has uh, shoulder replacement surgery tomorrow. So I'm sure she would appreciate your prayers and encouragement during that surgery and recovery. So um, it was so cool to get a letter and, and I did talk with her yesterday, and, and I guess she had listened to my sermon last week and where I had said that I can't remember the last time I got a letter. So she wrote me a letter, and it has some really nice words. And so I don't have church favorites, but if I did, it would be her right now, okay? At least for the time being. I mean, if you want that position, I'm sure you could find a way. There's a, there's a whole bunch of different ways. Um, so last week, we, we began this new series by talking about letters. When was the last time you got like a real letter written in someone's hand addressed to you? For some of you like me, it it's, it's, uh, maybe ha- will have been a long time. And I posed the question last week, how would it feel to get a letter to you from Jesus? Like the actual hand of Jesus writing a letter, words specifically to you. How would you feel about that? You probably feel a number of different things, but I know what you would do. You would definitely read the letter. You would want to know what Jesus had to say. And whatever Jesus had to say to you, my guess is, my hope is that you would take it seriously, the words of Jesus. And uh, the good news is, Jesus did write us letters. Jesus wrote his church seven individual letters to individual churches and groups of people And we're going to find that he wrote these letters to us as well. And so in this new series we began last week called Dear Church, we're looking at the seven letters of Jesus to his church that we find in the book of Revelation. 
Seven letters where Jesus shows us his heart for the church, his desire for who he wants us to be, what he wants us to look like as his people. And as we go through these letters one by one, week by week, we're gonna discover that each one gives us, shows us one attribute of what a healthy, faithful church looks like. And so my hope is that once we've gone through this, set, this series together, we will have like this complete picture of what a, a, a church after God's own heart looks like, a healthy, holy church. So if you're new to this church, or, or, or if, if you're new to church at all, and some of you might be, here or those watching online, uh, this is actually a great time for you to be joining in and listening over these weeks because you might be used to like churches talking about other people's flaws and problems, but what you're gonna hear over these weeks is us as a church talk about our own flaws, our own issues. And y'all know we got some. We're also gonna talk about what the church is supposed to be. And so whether, whether you're a long-timer in church or whether you're brand new to church, I think that we're all gonna learn an awful lot. So last week, if you were here, our, our opening message in the series, we just kind of wanted to set the scene of what these letters were. And so we were reminded last week of three things. The first thing we were reminded of is the identity of Jesus. Jesus isn't just that guy we think of who wore a robe and sandals and walked and taught and did some miracles on a hillside and died on the cross. Jesus is who he shows himself to be at the book of Revelation and who he is today. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is infinitely powerful. Jesus is ruler of all of creation, has authority over all things, holds the keys of life, and death, Jesus is big. And so last week we took some time just to see Jesus for who he is. The second thing we were reminded of is the care of Jesus. That as big as he is, as transcendent as he is, he cares for each and every church and each and every person. And so at the beginning of every one of these seven letters, you find the same words from Jesus. I know, he says, I know you. I know what you're going through. I know what you're struggling with. I know what you're suffering. I know what your sins are. I know what you're doing well. I know where you could grow. And I just love this picture we have of Jesus, that he is present with his churches. He is present with New Life Church. He is present with you. He knows you. He cares for you individually and us as a church. And he wants to speak to each one of us. And he wants to speak to our church today. And each day, in each message as we go through this series. And so we... we we were reminded of, of Jesus' individual care and presence with us. The third thing we were reminded of is the victory of Jesus. You know, the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, it's a cool book, it's a mysterious book, it's intriguing. But really it's written for one purpose, to encourage a church, a church that might be struggling and suffering and feel small and powerless, to encourage them with the, the knowledge that at, at the end God wins. How would you live different and face the things you face differently if you knew that in the end God would always win and that you, if you belonged to him and persevered in faith and obedience, you too would be victorious. You would overcome. That would change the way you went through life. And so this book, 
The book of Revelation reminds us, his church, in the end, God wins. He is victorious, and we will be too if we persevere with him. And so that kind of set the stage for these seven letters, uh, the first of which we're going to look at together this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation, easy to find, the last book of the Bible. And we're going to look at this letter to the church in Ephesus, which is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now these are the actual words of Jesus, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you were here last week, you know that the lampstands represent these seven churches. Jesus is walking amongst his churches like a shepherd walks amongst his sheep to oversee, to care, to protect, to, protect, to guide, okay? Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll get there. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so God's Spirit will be speaking to us here, and so we want to hear what God has for us because we're gonna discover that although these letters were written to a particular group of people at a particular place at a particular time, God speaks to us through them, um, and so God will speak to us. May we be able to to hear it and, and obey it. So Ephesus, now you've probably heard of Ephesus before. If you've been around church or you've been in your Bible enough, you've heard of Ephesus. It was a pretty important city. Um, in fact, it was kind of like the second or third city of the, of the M- Roman Empire. Like if Rome was like the Toronto of its day, Ephesus would have been the Montreal or the Vancouver. Or like if Rome was New York, Ephesus would have been L.A. or Chicago. A really prominent global city. Maybe because it was a port city. It was right on the coast of present-day Turkey. And so it became a center of trade. You know, ships from all over the known world would come and trade goods. And so it was a center of business and commerce and trade. And because of that, it was also a center of culture and religions because people came from all over the place to, to Ephesus and they brought with them their ideas. They brought with them their beliefs, their worldviews, their religions, their gods. And so Ephesus kind of became this melting pot of religion, this melting pot of ideas. And so history and archaeology uh, tells us that, that Ephesus was this huge city full of temples, at least 14 temples that they found large temples, the largest of which was the temple to the, uh, the, uh, the Greek goddess Artemis, which was uh, the Roman goddess Diana. Same goddess. So the goddess Artemis, she was the goddess of fertility and life. Uh, and, and so her temple was in Ephesus. Ephesus was famous for the temple to Artemis. People would come from all over to worship her, to come and visit a temple prostitute because she was the goddess of fertility. And 
her temple was huge. It was one and a half football fields long by one football field wide. So just picture that, right? They didn't have like steel girders with cranes. They had to build this with stone and chisels. Uh, uh, One and a half football fields long and one football field wide. Uh, Another big temple that was in uh, Ephesus was the temple to the Roman emperor Domitian, who was actually the, the emperor of this day when this letter was written. Now, Domitian was one of the few audacious Roman empires that declared himself a god while he was still living. That was abnormal. Normally, they were declared gods after they died, but Domitian wanted to be a god before he died, and so he declared himself a god, and he named Ephesus his guardian city. He chose Ephesus as the place that would be the guardian of his imperial cult. And so on the highest hill in Ephesus, Domitian built a temple to himself. There was a 50-foot stone statue of him that sat upon uh, stone pillars, and on those pillars were carved images of all sorts of the other gods. And it was kind of a way of saying, I am the Lord of lords, and I am the King of kings. I am above all other gods. And so uh, Ephesus was this place of all of these different gods and religions, and that was the context in which this church lived. That's what they were surrounded with. When they got out of bed and went to work that day, or they went to school that day, or went to the market, that's what surrounded them. We know a little bit of the history of this church, because in the book of Acts, uh, it tells us in Acts chapter 19 and 20 about the church in Ephesus. And we know that a whole letter was written to this church. Do you know what it's called? Ephesians. Yeah, so the letter of Ephesians was written by Paul to this church, and so we know some of the history. It was a church that was planted by Paul, and then Timothy became its pastor after Paul, and then the apostle John, who who recorded this book of Revelation, also became pastor of the church in Ephesus, so it was this high-profile church. And so in Acts chapter 19, you see Paul coming to Ephesus, and we're told that Paul preaches the truth of God for two, every day for two years, it tells us, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in the center of Ephesus. So they didn't have the internet in those days, right, where you could go on and everyone exchanged ideas. So they had like normally a big hall at the center of town where people would come and proclaim their ideas. And so Paul, for two years, every day, that's about 3,000 hours of scriptural teaching about the truth of God, Every day for two years, he taught and built the church in Ephesus to great effect. Many people that worshiped other gods came to put their trust in Jesus. And we find in Acts chapter 19, a whole bunch of people that were uh, fortune tellers, mediums, uh, sorcerers, uh, you know, kind of witch doctors, they put their trust in Jesus. And in Acts chapter 19, it talks about how they brought all their scrolls, their fortune telling scrolls, and all their, their, their spiritual texts, and they created a big pile, and they burned it, a big bonfire, as they turned to faith in Jesus. And so the church grew, and it prospered, even under these conditions. And we find in Acts chapter 20, Paul's final words to the church in Ephesus. He didn't go back to Ephesus, but what he did, he was in a neighboring town, and he called the elders of the Ephesian church to come and visit him. He has one final message to deliver to them. We find this in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, the final words of Paul to the, to the elders of the Ephesian church. He says this, verse 27, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you 
and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Be on your guard. That was kind of his final words, his final charge to the Ephesian church. He says, listen, people around you and even people with inside your church, they're gonna come and, and, and they're gonna proclaim something different than what I taught you. They're gonna try to distort the truth. It's your job to be on guard. Protect the truth. And you know what? They did. They did a really good job because years later, Jesus writes to this same church And he commends them for doing just that. He says, you guys have persevered in truth. You have been uncompromising in your commitment to the truth. You have not let go of sound doctrine. You have protected that. Here we see a church, it didn't care what other people thought. It didn't care what was popular or unpopular, what other people felt or how they were pressured by others. They weren't unashamed of the truth of God. They were uncompromising in it. We're told Jesus says that they tested everything against the scriptures to make sure it was true. They didn't want to fall into falsehood. So they tested everything and everyone against the truth of the scriptures. And when they found something to be a falsehood, they hated it. And Jesus even commends them for hating the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know who the Nicolaitans were, but they were a group of people probably within the church that had bought into some false gospel that they were proclaiming that brought false deeds. Probably what it was was a mix Like even today, right? Let's take a little bit of Christianity and we'll take a little bit of that and we'll take a little bit of that and we'll make something else. And they wouldn't stand for that. They were uncompromising and they hated anything that did not align with the truth. They stood firm on the truth, not giving an inch. And they were on guard. I remember when I was in high school, back in the mid-90s, late 90s, I went home for lunch every, every uh, school day because I only lived a couple blocks from the school. And like a lot of you teenagers today, you know, like it, it's hard, right? You're in a place where there's other people that have a whole bunch of other beliefs and ideas and there's a lot of pressure to conform to something else that's not the truth of God and his will. And I felt that as a teenager and so I remember coming home and just kind of feeling like feeling like I needed to be on guard and so what I did this was back in the days when they had like these big entertainment systems at homes remember like it was like this big black tower that cost a lot of money that sat in a corner of your living room and now you just have your phone in Alexa right hey Alexa so I would go to that and every lunch hour there for a while I would play this one song called A Few Good Men and I think it was by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some of you might even remember that song. Maybe the words come to you. But I'd play this and I'd kind of just be like, okay, Rusty, you're going back in. Just like be on guard, stand firm, be uncompromising. And so this is kind of what this church was like, right? Keep the, they kept their guard and they didn't give an inch. This is the sort of church you'd expect to be voted church of the year. And yet... There was a problem in this church that Jesus saw, a big problem. We hear about it in verses four and five when he says this. Yet I hold this against you. 
you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Now, your version might say, you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So, so whatever that means, this group of Christians, this church, they clung to the truth, but they seemed to be lacking in love. They weren't always lacking in love, but they'd reached a place where they lacked love. Now, lacked love in what way? For who? W- was Jesus referring to their love for God? Was he referring for their love for one another within the church? Or was he referring to their love for others, kind of just out in the neighborhood, out in the world? Unbelievers? Yeah, pr- probably, probably yes on each count. They lacked love for God, for one another, and for unbelievers, for, for sinners. What we see here is a, is a church that as their heads got bigger, their hearts got smaller. Did you know that could happen? As, your head, as you know more and you gain more knowledge, as your head gets bigger, your heart can grow smaller. It can grow colder and harder. Have you ever met people like that? Big head and small heart? You ever been a part of a church where you saw that? A lot of truth, but maybe not a lot of love? Hey, let's get really personal. Is that you? Would, 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 would that be true of you? Would you say that as your head has gotten bigger, your heart has gotten smaller? Do you know people who care more about being right than treating people right? You know, I, I think what Jesus is telling us here is Christians in church, if, if you're not careful, if you're not careful, devotion to truth, to the truth of God and his word, can erode your love for God and for people if you're not careful. And this is what had happened in this church. Their devotion for truth had masked an erosion of their love for God and for people. So what is Jesus saying here to us? I just want to suggest that Jesus is saying at least three things. If you grabbed one of those little uh, sermon note study guides there when you walked in, I've got some fill in the blanks there that you might want to use. What is Jesus saying? Well, the first thing that he's definitely saying is, church, don't divorce truth from love. Don't divorce truth from love. And I wonder if some of us do this naturally. We think that somehow truth and love are kind of competitors for our time and for our focus and space in our life. As if there's like one big pie chart and on it, you've got a, a truth section and a love section, and maybe it can be 50-50 or it can be 60-40 or 70-30, right? But they're kind of vying for the same space, truth and love. And so we might think, well, there, maybe there's some people that they're just kind of truth people, and some people they're kind of love people, and that's how it works. But what Jesus is saying is that's not how it works. You cannot divorce truth from love. And we see this shown to us even in the person of Jesus. John in his gospel, when he introduces Jesus, he says in the gospel of John 1.14, he says, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Think about that. He didn't come with half grace and half truth, nicely balanced on a scale. 
He came full of grace and full of truth as if Jesus was 100% truth and at the same time 100% grace and love. Which is exactly what he is because the Bible tells us Jesus is truth, right? John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth and John says in 1 John 4 that God is love. So God is truth and God is love. Not God loves as if, God, as if love is just one of the things that God does. God is love. Everything he does and is, is love. It flows from love. So God is truth and God is love. So these two things cannot be competitors for the same space. They, they must be held together and they are held together in the person of Jesus. And, and, and we see this love which moves God again and again. Those famous words in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so, what? For God so loved. For God, why did God send? Why did God send? Because God loved. Because that's, that is God. God is love. And because God is love, he loves the world and he sends his son to bear our sin that we might know God in his life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The gospel is God's love in motion. The God of truth. Romans 13, Paul puts it this way. Romans 13, verse eight, he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. In other words, whoever loves one another has done the truth. The commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there are may be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So here we see what love is. What is love? Love is not harming a neighbor, it's seeking the good of another. Love isn't just fond in the tingly feelings. That's not what love is. Love is seeking the good of another. That's what it means to love, to seek the good of another. And Paul says here, that's what it's all about. All of God's truth, all of his word is about love. And so he'll, he'll even say this, something as strong as this. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. That's quite a statement. If I have all knowledge, if I know all the right answers, and I'm doing all the right things, and my head is just full of God's truth, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. Why? Because you cannot separate truth and love without compromising the other. You can't. Right? In fact, we're gonna, we find that truth and love are different sides of the exact same coin. They're inseparable. As soon as you try to separate them, you lose it. So, Paul will say in Ephesians 4, uh, 15, now he's talking to the church in Ephesus. You'll see the words up on the screen. 
He, Paul talks to this church, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So what, what did Paul say to this church? You need to speak, you need to do both, to speak the truth in love, not to speak the truth, that's not enough, and not to love, that's not enough. To speak the truth in love, then we'll, we will become everything that God wants us to be when we do not separate these two things because as soon as you separate them, you lose them. So what, what Paul is saying is if you spoke the truth but you didn't speak it in love, you've actually told a lie. You've compromised the truth because God is love. It's possible to speak the truth out of something other than love. But then it ceases to become the truth. You have compromised the truth. And on the flip side of that coin, if you... Do not speak the truth, but you speak in love, it ceases to be loving. If you speak a lie because you think it's good for the other person, you know, if, if like it's, it's really out of love and care for them, it actually ceases to be loving because people need to know the truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. Kind of like, well, I mean, love without truth, what do you call that? The, the biblical word for love without truth is flattery, Right? To, to say something that's nice and warm and tingly and encourages a person, kind words, but words that are not true, and maybe words that are harmful. It says in the book of Proverbs, he who flatters his neighbor lays a net for their feet, sets a trap for them. Why? Because they might be doing something, they're marching off a cliff and they don't even know it. Right? And what does love do? Love tells the truth. You know, if you see a friend shipwrecking their marriage in some way, like what does love do? Love gets in the way. Right, love tells the truth. You cannot divorce truth and love, Jesus says. So if you are a church dedicated to declaring the truth, and may we be that, but if we are not loving, then we're no longer declaring the truth. That's what Jesus says. You're actually, you're actually, you're actually not a truthful church. And so before I move on to, to the second thing Jesus is saying, um, COVID, social media. Everyone's got their own opinions about masks and this and everything else. And can I, just, can I just be frankly honest with you? No one needs to know your opinion on it. Can I just, can I just be honest? You don't really need to share your opinion. Like, hey, I mean, feel free to, but it, you know what? Everyone's got an opinion, and a lot of people feel very free to strongly share theirs, but, but you know what I think we need to do? It's not just about sharing the truth. It's about whatever we do motivated by love, not to triumph over another. To be loving. Maybe we could bring a little bit more love to this world and culture that lacks a lot of it right now. Don't divorce truth from love, Jesus says. The second thing that we need to see in this letter is that we should not settle for duty instead of delight. Don't settle for duty instead of delight. Jesus said to this church, you have forsaken your first love or the love that you had at first. Now, now that definitely starts with the love of God. That is the first love, right? Love of God, everything Every all, all the love we give flows out of our first love, which is our love for God. And you know what? You wouldn't be a Christian if at some point you weren't moved by love for God. 
That's how, if you became a Christian, that's how you became a Christian. You heard the good news of Jesus, that in his love, you heard what God did for you through his son Jesus, and that if all you would do is trust in what Jesus had done on your behalf, repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, Savior Jesus would give you forgiveness and bring you into relationship with him and give you the gift of life forever with him. You heard that and, and you were moved with love for God. Like that's how, that's how you became a Christian. Like nobody became a Christian by going, geez, I guess I can't really argue with that. I mean, what are you gonna say? I, best, I better, I guess I should do this. Probably the right thing to do. Like nobody became a Christian out of duty. It's never happened. A heart doesn't get converted that way. It began with delight in God. When we beheld his love for us and we had love for him. That manifested itself in faith in Jesus. That's how we became Christians. And yet, what happens? The, more, the longer you can be, be a Christian, it, you, you just can naturally drift from living out of delight in God to living in duty for God. And this just kind of happens in relationships, like marriage, right? Nobody got married, well, maybe with arranged marriages somewhere, but not us. Nobody got married, I guess I better, probably should, I mean, if that's why you're getting married, don't, don't do that. I mean, we fell in love with the other person. We, we delighted in them. But you know what happens in marriage, right? Like, you can just drift from delight into duty, going through the motions, doing the things that you're supposed to do. Jesus is saying, don't settle for duty, f- duty uh, to God instead of delight in God. Instead of a, a person to know and a relationship to, to enjoy, um, our faith can become religious activity to, to do in a belief system to adhere to. It, it can become more about knowing the right answers, right? I, I think that was this church. They knew all the right answers. They did all the right things, behaviors. But it became something that was done out of duty and not out of delight in God, out of love for God, like for instance, think in a marriage, like if, if my wife were to go some evening and she had a meeting and I saw like she had just made this great meal and she, and she makes, my wife is, is an amazing cook and she's not even here to hear that and I'm still saying that so like that's, I must really believe that, right? She, she's great and anyway, so um, let's say she goes to a meeting and, and then the kitchen is dirty and I go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna clean the kitchen. Like it could happen. Like, I'm not saying it has, but like, it, it could happen, potentially. And I say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean this kitchen for her because she just, she does so much for me. And I love her. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to, this is going to be spotless. Like, not one, of those, not one of those rusty half cleans where you put half of it in the dishwasher and then you just pile the rest into the corner so it kind of looks clean, right? Like a full clean. And she comes back that evening and she walks into the kitchen. She goes, hon, thank you. So why did you do this? And what would you think? What would she think if I said, well, I did it, Erica, because I am devoted to the institution of marriage. No. You'd be stupid if you said that. (laughs) Guys, don't say that. 
No, I'd say, sweetie, it's because I love you. I love who you are. I love what you do, and I just want to bless you. You mean so much to me. And that's, that's how we're to live life. As a response, a loving response to the love that God has lavished on us. And, and, and so Jesus, you know, when he was asked in Matthew 22, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You know, like the highest truth, Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. To love God. So, so church, we need to pursue delight and not settle for duty. And I think the longer that we're Christians, the more we can kind of drift from delight in God to duty for God. And I don't know where you are this morning. Do you say that you, would you say that you are delighting in God? That you do what you do out of delight in God? Maybe we need to pray the prayer that, that David prayed in Psalm 51 when he prayed. He said to God, God, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Maybe we need to pray that prayer. God, that joy that I had at the beginning that moved me to trust you, restore that joy, that delight that I have in you. Restore that. I don't want to trade that simply for duty. And how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we have that restored? Well, I mean, how do we do that in marriage? Like tonight, my wife, I'm not a perfect husband. I see this look of shock. I'm not a perfect husband. I am close. I'm not close. <laughs> My wife's been saying for a little while, it's time to go on a date. Yeah, yeah, we'll get around to that. So yesterday, Rusty, we really need to go on a date. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. So tonight, the plan is five guys. Going to five guys, burgers and fries. Her and I. You need to do that in marriage, right? Because it started with delight. And how do you, how do you, how do you keep delight? Well, you, you got to kind of keep going back to where it all began, right? To restore delight. And I think it's no different in our relationship with God, right? By, we, we need to restore that joy, that delight in God by continually remembering what God has done for us and what he has promised to do for us. And, and, and that's, kind of what we do when we gather here. That's the value of coming and worshiping. Like when we sing these songs, not just we're singing because we're supposed to sing and these words are true. It's a way of restoring to us the joy of our salvation. When we worship and in a few minutes when we come to communion, we take these little cups and we remember what Jesus has done for us because he loves us. It's a way to restore to us delight in God and not settle for duty. So this is what Jesus is saying to us through this letter. Church, don't settle for duty. Pursue delight in God as the source of all you do. And thirdly, I think Jesus is saying don't replace compassion with contempt. Don't replace compassion with contempt because I don't know what what your experience has been, but the farther that I get in the Christian life, the further I get away from maybe that day, that time of my own salvation, Uh, the more I can become judgmental, the more compassion gets replaced with uh, condemnation of other people, contempt. 
You know, like we, we're called to judge. The Bible says we have to make judgments. That, that's to be true, to stand in truth. You have to make judgments. What is a judgment? To, to discern between right and wrong, true and false. But, but they were a church that was making right judgments but shifted into a judgmental spirit. And no longer was there this compassion and love for one another and love for others in the broken world around them Their hearts had become hard towards those needs and towards the sin and the mess in other people's lives and compassion had become contempt and condemnation and instead of seeing sin as the problem, they started to see people as the problem and that's so easy to happen, isn't it? Especially you've been a Christian a long time and you feel like you've come come a ways and now you start to be pretty proud of your own righteousness and where you're at and all the knowledge you have and the things that you do. And we can start to see people as the problem and not their sin as the problem. And instead of hating sin, as Jesus commends them for doing, and we have to hate sin. That seems like a strong word, but Jesus said it. Church, hate sin. Why? Because sin robs people of God's best for them. Sin injures God's glory, and sin injures people. A loving person hates sin because of what it does to people and to God's glory. So he commends them for hating the the evil deeds of this particular group. But hating sin can shift into hating the sinner instead of loving the sinner. And we're called to hate sin and love sinful people, to love people. And instead what we can do is maybe like the, 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 the Ephesian church because they were so on guard and uncompromising they started to separate themselves from other and get short with people in their sin and people in their mess and maybe withdraw and that happens when, when we begin to believe that we are what we are because of us and not because of God but, but Jesus wants us to know everything you are and know and have and do that is good is by God's grace From beginning to end, what you have, what you do, and what you are is God's grace in your life. And so John will say this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20. He will say this, we love because Jesus first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Did you hear what he said? If you love God or if you think you love God but you don't love other people, you don't love God. Your love for God is actually a lie. It's fake. It's false. Because love of God manifests itself in love for other people. That's how it reveals itself. Love of God becomes love of people. Isn't that what Jesus said, right? What is the greatest command, Jesus? Well, it's this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Oh, and the next is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He's trying to connect the dots for us because often we don't connect those dots. Love of God becomes love of others. And so we have this church tradition. I don't know if it's true. But like I said earlier, John in his old age, before he got exiled to the island of Patmos and received this vision and wrote this letter, John was the pastor of this church in Ephesus. 
And he was an aged man at that point, and um, he couldn't walk anymore, so for the church service, when he was gonna give his sermon, he had to be carried into the room in the arms of his disciples. And at these uh, church services, he was accustomed to saying no more than this, little children love one another. Can you imagine if that was my whole sermon? Would you like that? Week after week, little children love one another. After a time, the disciples wearied at always hearing the same words, and so they asked John, Master, why do you always say this? He replied by saying, it is the Lord's command, and if this is done, it is enough. If this alone is done, it is enough. Love of God becomes love of others. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, church, be a people that has fervent love for God and for one another. Okay, that's, that, that's what he's saying to this church and to us. Church, Christians, be a church of truth. Yes, but do not be a church of truth without love because then you're not truthful anymore. Be a church marked by fervent love for God and for others. Jesus is saying, be a church that is moved by love towards the needs of other people. When you see needs around you, poor people, you know, people going through a messy breakup, and you might think, well, yeah, it's because you did this, that, and the other. You know, you kind of made your bed, now you got to lie in it. You know, people that are experiencing all sorts of problems and struggles, have all sorts of needs and have all sorts of addictions and sins. Are we people that have compassion as Jesus had compassion on us that God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? That is love. Love moves us towards the needs of others. It moves us to have compassion on others. That's sort of church that Jesus wants us to be. You know, Jesus tells a, or uh, John tells a story of Jesus. It's in the Gospel of John, and, and I'll share this story as we move to communion. And you know, it's one of my favorite stories. You probably know the story, John chapter eight. Jesus is preaching uh, in the temple courts in Jerusalem, and as he's preaching, the Pharisees drag into the courts a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. You know the law of Moses. It says that we need to stone to death such a woman. What do you think we should do? And Jesus, he pauses. He writes in the ground with his finger, and I'd love to know what Jesus was writing. I'm going to ask him someday, like, what were you writing in the dirt? After a pause, he looks at them, and he says, you, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. The one of you that doesn't have any sin, you be the first one to throw the stone. It tells us that one by one, those Pharisees dropped their rocks and left until nobody was left but Jesus and this woman. And Jesus says to her, has nobody condemned you, woman? And she says, nobody, Lord. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And what do we see? We see a Jesus full of truth and grace. 
I mean, Jesus loved this woman enough to tell the truth, to tell her to, to leave that life of sin, to call her into something better. And yet, he was full of truth and grace. He had mercy on this woman and forgave her sin because Jesus is full of truth and full of grace. And this is what I want to tell you, that, that each of us is in this story, okay? Each of you is in that story. And the question I have for you is, who are you in that story? Who are you in that story? Some of you, you might be the woman. You know, someone who's maybe in a life of sin. Not following God. Maybe that's you. And, and maybe this morning you need to receive God's forgiveness. Like, like you need to so you need to leave your life of sin and you need to give your life, surrender your life to God through faith in Jesus Christ and trust him as your Lord and Savior and receive God's forgiveness and be on the path that he calls you on. Maybe, maybe you're the woman in that story this morning. Maybe you're the Pharisee. Maybe you're someone this morning that needs to be reminded that you are nothing but a sinner saved by God's grace because God loved you. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning and maybe you need to drop some stones in your life and pick up love and pick up compassion. Where are you in that story?